Well, you can keep those Bibles open at Mark chapter 8. And um, there are handouts on the seats around you if you want to use the back of that to scribble some notes and follow along with this passage this week. Um, it's, it's getting Christmassy, isn't it? Look at this. The, um, the Adventist church have just put up some cool things and it looks nice. Right. Getting ready for Christmas. If there's one thing that I'm picking up from the book of Mark, and hopefully you're with me on this, it's that the author, Mark, is really wanting us to ask a question, or at least get a really good answer to this question. Um, and, and, and he keeps trying to get us there with everything he does, the way he pulls together this biography of Jesus. Mark wants us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And in fact, more than just casually asking that question, and the author here is trying to get us to interrogate that question and make sure you've got a really good, cracking, solid answer to that question. Who is Jesus? We're kind of at a turning point in the book here now in Mark's Gospel. It's the halfway point where we're going to kind of finish up at chapter 8 and then we'll pick it up again next year and do the second half. But here in chapter 8, there's an incident where Jesus asked this very question to his disciples. And it, and it really matters. So zoom in there right off the bat with me. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So Jesus first asks the disciples about what other people think of him. What are the different ideas that people have got about me? It, Jesus is really interested because actually nothing matters more than the way you answer this question. And the disciples answer him, oh, there's a variety of ideas, basically. So look at the ideas there. They, some say John the Baptist, which is an interesting thing to say, considering John the Baptist just lost his head a little while earlier. So some people think that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, got his head put back on. And he's, so some people are thinking that. Um, others are thinking that Jesus is Elijah, which is a classic Old Testament prophet. Probably because of some of the feeding miracles that Jesus did. It's kind of similar to some of the things that went on in Elijah's ministry. Um, and, and then he says, and some say just a prophet. Meaning you're just this figure that's come who's kind of powerful in your speech um, and in your miracles that you're doing. So you're just another prophet that's come along. There's, there's a variety of ideas about what people think about Jesus. And then Jesus does this thing to the disciples. He goes, but what about you guys? What do you reckon? And I love this moment. Look, 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 look what he says there. Verse 39, 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? I love this moment. It's so direct. Jesus is so interested in who they think he is. Jesus is still very interested in who you think he is. More, more than anything else, can, can I just ask, ask you to consider Jesus right up in your face right now and looking you in the eyes saying, who, who do you think I am? What do you honestly believe about me deep down? Um, he's most interested in this question because the way you answer this question will actually impact the whole of your eternity. Who do you think Jesus is? So here he is coming straight at his disciples and here Jesus coming for you tonight. Who do you really think he is? Now look at the answer that's given and it's given by the, what would you call Peter? The um, self-appointed spokesperson for the disciples. 
He loves to just pipe in whenever he gets the opportunity to speak up on behalf of everybody and also just to put his foot in it as well as putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's a classic. I love Peter and he's got more in this passage as well. Um, But Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples and look at the answer he gives. It's a cracker. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Yep. So Peter nails it. You know, the Messiah means the Christ, which is like this long-awaited king who would finally come and redeem Israel and lead his people to freedom again. And so here's Peter saying, you're the Messiah, we've got it. It, it's, and, and it's so good to see the disciples at this point, really, because they've been bumbling along for a while as they've been following Jesus. Yep, unsure really of who he is. They know he's a rabbi and a good teacher, but, but they're kind of shocked by what he does. And, and they're even fearful when they're in his presence of him sometimes. So they, they really are still trying to figure it out. But it's almost like we arrive at this moment and it's like they finally get it. And Jesus goes, who do you think I am? And they go, we figured it out. <laughs> You're the Messiah. Um, and, and they nail it. They get it. Or have they got it? That's the question to ask. Because when you read on, you realise, oh, okay. They might have used the word Messiah. They might have got the title of Jesus right. But what they're thinking in their minds when they say Messiah is pretty different from the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. What what they're expecting from Jesus, the King, the long-awaited King, is actually really different from what Jesus plans to do. So they've got the word right. They got the title right, but the substance behind it is actually way off, or at least super underdeveloped. And instead of Jesus going, cool, you've got Messiah, um, but your concept's a little bit right, it's okay, we'll work it out, it actually gets pretty intense in this moment. Because what happens is, after they say, you are the Messiah, Jesus goes, great, let me explain to you what I'm about to do as Messiah. And and look at what he goes on to say. So verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking about himself in the third person, he he goes to teach them what the Son of Man must suffer many things. So here's what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things and then I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed. And after that, three days, after three days, rise again. And Jesus spoke plainly about this to the disciples. So, so they say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus goes, good, got it. Let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and then I'm going to be killed. Got it? And they go, what? That, you know, Peter, literally, he's, it's like his head explodes because that is not what he's got in his mind as the Messiah, and in fact, he's, he's, Peter feels so strongly about it. Look what he does. He, that's Jesus, spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to ask polite questions about what he means by that. No, no. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. So as, as Jesus has been saying this, Peter's like, oh, no, he's got it very wrong, the poor fella. Jesus, come over here for a sec, mate. Takes him off the side, puts his arm around him and goes, mate. I just need to unpack for you. You've got it pretty wrong. And he starts to correct him. And in fact, the word rebuke is pretty strong. It's like, mate, you are way off. I don't know what you're thinking with this suffering business. 
and this being rejected business and this dying business. No, no, that is not the plan. And he works hard to correct Jesus. What is the picture that Peter had in mind anyway? What's the idea that your classic Jewish person in the first century had, typically, of what the Messiah would come and do? Well, they knew the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel, but the way they were expecting the Messiah to do that was to basically try and do a repeat of history, to come and be the kind of king like the good old days. And so in Peter's mind, he's thinking back to King David, King Solomon, and the time when Israel was a superpower. So he's expecting the Messiah, and most of the Jews are expecting this, the Messiah would come, be the king of Israel again, release Israel from the rule of the Romans, and become again the superpower where the headquarters is in Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting Jesus to be. In fact, if the first century Jews could have a T-shirt with a slogan on it that represented what they were expecting from the Messiah, this would be the slogan, something like this, to make Israel great again. Yeah? Does that sound familiar? That's what Peter's expecting. Awesome superpower. Let's get rid of this oppressive enemy Rome and let's become epic again, and let's rule again, and that's what it's all about. And I'll tell you what, Jesus has come as the Messiah to redeem his people, but not in an earthly kingdom in the same way that they were expecting. There's a whole bunch of things they've missed. And, and really, the way Jesus is going to do it is by suffering and being rejected and dying. That is how he's going to rule. That's how he's going to reign. That's how he's going to redeem and it's nothing like what they were thinking. In fact, it's what Peter's got in his mind is so far off, and it's such a problem that it's so far off, that Jesus says, for you to think that way about me, and for you to expect me to be that kind of a king, is for you to basically side with the great enemy of God. I mean, look at the language Jesus uses here. It's, it's so important that Peter and the disciples get the right idea about Messiah, that look at the language, Jesus comes back at Peter, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he doesn't just let Peter get away with this. He, he says to Peter, effectively calls Peter Satan. In other words, what, what you're doing here, the way you're thinking, the way you're rebuking me, you're with the enemy. You, you, you're actually making yourself the enemy of God and the enemy of God's plans, which involve me coming to be the Messiah in the way God intended. You're siding with the enemy. This is huge. It's a big problem. It's not just a slight difference that needs to be corrected. Jesus is not going to let go of this one because it's not enough to just have the title. It's not enough just to get the words right or the phrase right. You've got to get the substance right. They've got the word, they've got the phrase, but the substance is all wrong behind the phrase. And, 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 and for us, we can reflect on this somewhat as well. It's possible entirely, isn't it, for people to consider themselves to be Christians and get some of the phrases right and the titles right and get the words right coming out of your mouth, but have a really different idea about those things from what Jesus might have in mind. But we can do the same thing. 
Think, think about it with me. It's entirely possible for you or me or someone today to be thinking about themselves as a Christian and saying things like, yeah, I'm a, I believe in God. But, but what they mean by that is, well, I believe there is a God and that he's the one that likely made everything. But they're yet to come to believe in the big thing that God has actually done in his son Jesus on the cross. That, 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 that's not part of the belief, but a person might be thinking, and maybe this you today, you're like, I believe in God, surely that's enough. No, no. Do you believe in the big thing God did <laughs> by sending his son? Because that, that's really what it means to believe in God. Or, or you could be someone who, this is, it's easy to do this, it's, it'd be someone who's figured out how to belong to a church, and fit in and be helpful and, um, you know, contribute and, and, and feel like that because you belong to a mob of Christians and you're part of the community and, and a valued part of the community that you, you're all right, but it's entirely possible to belong to a church community but yet to actually have a personal saving relationship with Jesus. Yep. I think churches around our nation, around our world, can, can easily be filled with people who love the sense of belonging. It's part of what God's got for us. It's awesome to belong to God's people and function as part of it. But to, to do that and actually miss the personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus is to miss the guts of this. Yeah. So it's easy to have the phrases and some of the concepts, but miss the heart. You know, I think it's even easy to... Um, for a person to use the word salvation in regards to Jesus and to be a person who says, um, talks about themselves as being saved. I got saved at a certain point uh, and I've been saved by Jesus. But you can use that language, and here's the classic thing I hear these days, you use the language about being saved by Jesus, but what the person means is that they've been saved from failing to reach their full potential And effectively see Jesus' coming and existing is actually to just really help their life to be all that it can be. And that's the definition of salvation. So the definition of sin in that picture really is sin is failing to be all that you can be. And there's some truth to that. But if you leave sin defined as that, then you actually will miss what Jesus will tell you about sin, which is way more hardcore. Sin is actually the diseased heart that you have that makes you by nature actually desire to at times and means to reject and rebel and offend um, and, and betray the one who made you and loves you. That, that's sin. That's heavy. That's not simply not reaching your full potential. That's almost like a, a secularised version or picture of salvation. So do you see what I'm getting at though? Like you can use the word saved. I've been saved by Jesus. But what do you mean by saved? What do you think you've been saved from? Because if you can't articulate what sin is and the problem with sin and how you personally need to be saved from your sin, then your picture of salvation may be very different from what Jesus would have you understand. In which case, he, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. Yeah? You know, I think it's, here's, here's another version, and this is the final one i give you. Um, and I think we're all in this space on some level, and that is the concept of understanding sin 
and understanding how the cross works and how blood is shed so we can be forgiven and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus. So you get, you get salvation and you even get the cross, but you don't quite yet get the concept of lordship. So you receive Jesus as saviour, but you haven't quite got him as Lord yet. You haven't in your heart decided to humbly submit to his lordship in, in all of your life and to let him rule and to, and to actually desire with your life by the power of the Spirit to obey him and let it cost you to obey him. And that is your worship, a life of obedience. Yeah, And, and, and on some level, we're all in that picture. All those of us who genuinely put our faith in Jesus, we're in a sense still working out how to submit more and more, how to actually have him and live with Jesus as your Lord in all areas of life. We've all got development in that regard. But it could, it could be that you've got the salvation thing and it's like a bus pass. You pop it in your back pocket and you think, good, I'll pull that out on the final day and I'll show that at the pearly gates. And then you just get on with your life without realising that you're meant to be living with him as your Lord, under his lordship. Yeah. So where are you at? Where are you at with your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done? And, 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 and dig into the substance of that, not just the terms and the titles and the phrases, because you can trick people, you can trick yourself by learning how to say the right sentences, but have you got the guts of this? Because Jesus wants you to get the guts of it because without the guts of it, you haven't really got it. Yeah? This concept of what it takes to become a genuine believer, which is almost what's on view for us here with the disciples. It's like they're on a journey. They're on a path towards genuine belief. They haven't got it yet, but they've got something. This concept of what it takes to be a genuine believer, I think, is illustrated by the healing miracles in this section of Mark's gospel. And I think that's what he's done. So if you've been reading this passage during the week and you've seen the healing miracles there, here is why I think Mark has arranged this chapter the way he has. He pulls these miracles in as almost illustrations to help us understand some concepts about belief and real genuine belief. So let's look at the two miracles and just enjoy the detail really in these miracles and then see how it points us to help us understand something about genuine belief because this is the big thing that the disciples are trying to get and it's the big thing that we need to get so the two miracles there are you get one at the end of chapter seven the deaf and mute man and you get one in chapter eight that we just had read to us in verse 22 let's start with the deaf and mute man and we'll just um look at the details here they're awesome so verse 31 in chapter 7, Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went down to Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. It's similar to the paralytic that gets brought and lowered down through the roof to Jesus. This guy's got mates who are bringing him to Jesus as well. This guy's deaf. And, and, and he can hardly speak. Maybe it means he's been deaf since birth and because he's, he's never been able to hear um, the way you speak. And so this is his situation. Um, verse 33, after he took, uh, that's Jesus, after Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, notice that, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. 
Then he spit, or we could say spat, and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Afatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. How cool is that? How's the detail in that? It's amazing, isn't it? Like Jesus doesn't just go, you're healed. There's, there's all these other things going on. Jesus gets his fingers and he puts his fingers into the guy's ear holes. And then Jesus spits, probably onto his own hand. Some of you are like looking at me like this. Right? You can look at Jesus like that, all right? He spits onto his own hand and he wipes it on the guy's tongue. Like this is, this is theatre, isn't it? Like well, you've got to figure out what's going on here. I mean, I, I can't help but to be reminded of what we used to get up to at school. Like, did you ever, did you ever do that where you, you wet your finger with your spit and your slobber and you sneak up behind someone who you love and you um, stick it in their ear hole? It's just, it was just me and my mates. There's a few nods. It's called a wet willy. If you've never heard of a wet willy, it's disgusting, all right? It's absolutely gross. Um, I just never knew how spiritual we were being when we did that in the school ground it certainly um, didn't heal anyone that's for sure probably did the opposite of that sticking fingers in ears spitting and wiping it on tongues this is Jesus do you like Jesus <laughs> have a look at the other miracle and then we'll come back to some of these details in a minute um, so the healing of the blind man chapter 8 verse 22 they came to Bethsaida and some people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So a similar scenario, friends bring the blind man um, to Jesus, they want him healed. Um, look at this, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. Jesus said, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. It, this one's like a two-stage miracle. Yeah? We're going to look at that detail in a little bit as well. But just, you sit back from those two and the, the things I think you notice most clearly of, as far as commonalities, there's a whole bunch of them, is, is number one, that Jesus takes the person outside the village away from the crowd and number two, all the touching and the spitting. All right, so let's just think about those two things for a minute. Outside the village, away from the crowd, I think what you see clearly here with the way Jesus ministers is he's concerned for the person, not the performance. He's not trying to whip up a frenzy. He's trying to run from the crowd and the frenzy majority of the time. But he is interested in the person. And in this situation, he takes the person one-on-one, -on -one. he takes them away from the crowd to be with them and show his compassion for them and heal them in a very personal way. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, this, this artwork that's been up in church through this whole series, we actually didn't preach on this particular passage, but this is the moment where that woman in the crowd, she's, she thinks she's surrounded by everyone else, but she ends up being able to have this beautiful personal moment with Jesus where she reaches out and just touches his cloak and Jesus notices. He notices something's happened and he knew this was going to happen and he turns around and engages with her on such a beautiful personal level and there's healing there and this is what Jesus is like. Yeah, He knows. He sees. 
He has compassion on the individual. And he knows you and he sees you. No one knows you properly. Not even the best of your friends or your spouse or your closest family member. No one really knows what's going on in that head of yours (laughs) or what's swimming around in the heart of yours. Only what you choose to share or what some people perceive. But Jesus knows. He knows you. He sees you. He hears everything going on in your head. He feels what you're feeling. And he loves you. And he's able to draw near to you and have compassion on you and be with you. This is the Jesus we have. Someone who knows you like no one else will and is able to have compassion on you and care for you like no one else can. Jesus cares for you. Yep, better than that person next to you. As awesome as they are. Or as the person in your mind that you dream that you hope one day you'll meet and all your dreams will come true. Yeah, got nothing on Jesus. And then there's all this touching and spitting, which is a bit odd. Um, It's clear that Jesus can heal without touching or spitting because there's lots of other incidences. So he didn't have to do it this way. Yep. Um, But he chooses to. And I wonder where it's got something to do with him taking them out away from the crowd too. It's this kind of moment and there's intimacy involved in this moment and there's connection. Um, Now, in the ancient world, to spit, it could either be to curse or to bless. Yeah, you, you, might, you might know when Jesus is arrested, um, he's spat on in that moment, which is not to bless him. That's to curse him. It's to humiliate him. It's to degrade him. In the same way that if someone spat on you today, you, you likely would feel pretty degraded. Yep. Um, so to spit on someone could be to degrade them, but it could also be something else and even a, a sign of a blessing in the ancient world. So you've got to try and get your head into the first century Jewish world here. Um, sometimes sacred agreements would be sealed with some saliva in different ways, sometimes. Sometimes saliva was used because it was considered to have healing properties, particularly on eyes and things like that. And so saliva was used in the ancient world um, to, to help with healing and recovery. And, and there are some studies today, I don't want to pretend I know anything about this kind of stuff, but there are some studies that point out some goodies in your saliva but also some baddies as well. You're probably better off going to the doctors or going to see one of the doctors in this hospital rather than just spitting on what the problem is. However, because that's common in the mind of a first century person, it's likely Jesus had that in mind and and used this, I want want to say theatre or even miming to just make it really clear what his intention is to do in this moment. So no one would miss um, who the healing comes from and how it's happened. Yep. So there's, there's spitting and there's touching. And I think it's intentional. It's like an acted parable that you can't miss. Jesus really wants to display to this person particularly where their healing has come from. And picture, if you're a blind person, you, you might not be confident who's healed you, you know. But Jesus touches and spits. And the deaf person... You know, who can't hear who the person is and their voice as they speak. They need to be touched. So here's Jesus drawing near, making it clear and, and, and going extra personal and intimate with the healing. I think that's what's happening. Interesting anyway, isn't it? 
getting the speed happening. However, the big thing that's important to get is, um, I think, when you sit back from looking at these two miracles, they teach us something about the nature of belief, which is the bigger thing to catch. It's bigger than physical healing, this concept of deep, genuine belief in Jesus. And I think these two miracles are positioned the way they are to help us understand something about the disciples and their belief that's emerging and also to help us understand something about the very nature of belief. So two things i got for you. The first thing is by noticing the two-stage healing of the blind man, I think it helps us understand um, there's somewhat of a two-stage belief or a gradual belief happening for the disciples, particularly here in this moment. Um, Now, think with me for a minute. The the blind guy, Jesus says, can you see, after he first spits on him and touches him, can you see? And the blind guy says, well, I see trees and they're walking around. So has he been healed? Partially. He can see something. He's never been able to see anything before. And he's seeing trees walking around. It's like Lord of the Rings or actually I don't know those kind of movies, but you know the movies. Is it Lord of the Rings where the trees walk around? There you go. go. I know what I'm talking about here, right? The guy says, I see trees walking around. And, and this is not, Jesus is not like, ah, oh, whoops, meant to heal you properly. We'll give him another go. No, no, this is really deliberate. He's doing it in two stages because he chooses to do it this way. And then he puts his hands on him again. And this time the man is, has his sight fully restored. Now, what's with this? I think Jesus does it this way. And Mark includes it in this to help us understand something about belief and, and particularly what's happening for the disciples. It's like they get it. It's like they can see Because they say, you're the Messiah. But they can't really see yet. They haven't got clarity on what the Messiah is. For the disciples, their belief is like emerging. It's like it's gradual or it's in stages. They can partly see, but they haven't quite got it yet. It's like they're partly healed of their unbelief, but not fully yet. Yeah? And, And you see evidence of this. All, all through the book of Mark where the disciples are still trying to get it. Like, did, did you notice the second feeding miracle in Mark's gospel? You, you got the feeding in the 5,000. We did, looked at that last week. But then here in chapter 7 or 8, 7, 8, at the start of 8, there's the feeding of the 4,000. It's like, it's like Jesus goes, okay, I'm going to repeat this lesson, see if they got it this time. Oh, no bread. What are we going to do? And the disciples are like, we don't know. Where are we going to get bread from? It's like, oh, seriously? You didn't, like we just did this a few days ago or however long it was ago. They're, they're slow to catch it. They haven't got it yet. Their belief is emerging. They haven't yet learned to trust that Jesus can and will provide. It's like their spiritual eyes and ears are not quite open yet. Now, before we apply this directly to us, we've got to be a little bit careful. Um, because um, I think what's happening for the disciples here is it's, it's a unique situation. What you've got here in the ministry of Jesus and soon afterwards is the overlap of the ages. You've got the old covenant and you've got the new covenant of the Spirit. And this ministry of Jesus is in the midst of it all. It's like a transitional moment. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. So you answer me this question. When did the disciples become Christians? Was it, was it when they first started following Jesus? Was it... 
Was it when they first saw some miracles? Was it in this moment where they say the Messiah? Was it at the Transfiguration? Was it at Pentecost? Was it kind of almost even after Pentecost? When did they really get it? It's, it's gradual for them. It's unique for them. It's, it's, it's a bit different for them. Because living now fully in the age of the Spirit, we understand how salvation and belief works. Um, regeneration by the Holy Spirit happens for a person to enable belief. Yep. So there's no such thing as almost a Christian for us today. You either are or you're not. You've either received the Spirit or you haven't. You've either put your trust in Jesus or you haven't. But there's something slightly different going on here. So you've got to be careful about applying it directly to us. But can I give you a little example of how the concept can be applied to us somewhat? And that's this. There's, there, is, there is a sense in which for all of us, who would say we've got Jesus and we've got salvation and we know he's our Lord, that we're all still on this journey of progression and maturity towards really understanding and living for Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's happening for all of us on some level. Um, so when Jesus warns the Pharisees and he says, be careful of the yeast, sorry, warns the disciples, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees, um, I think we need to be careful of that as well in that, the yeast is the concept of the evil that the Pharisees have got, their hard-heartedness towards Jesus, their refusal to accept who he is. And I think this is what we need to be careful of as well. Just watch your hard heart. There'll be a certain amount you know and understand and believe, but there'll be more for you to understand and the thing that can be holding you back from actually growing and getting clarity about your belief and going deeper in your belief, actually is not simply just an intellectual exercise. It can be the condition of your heart. Hard-heartedness can hold us back from really accepting Jesus and we find ourselves still resisting him in subtle ways. So where are you at? What's happening for you? Where are you stuck? Where's the development that still is yet to happen for you? to go deeper in your belief and more serious about your worship and your service, living under the Lordship, like where are you at and what's, it, what's stopping you from moving forward and God's intention is that we would all be growing. He promises, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the God who began a good work in you, he wants to bring it to completion. So we're all a work in, a progr in progress. Let's... let's Partner with Jesus in this work that he's doing in us. There's the first thing. Here's the second thing and the final thing. The second way in which these miracles help us understand something significant about, a belief, is, about belief is this. Belief is miraculous. Belief is miraculous. It's, it's kind of easy to look at someone who gets healed physically and go, Wow! Miraculous. But I think what we're meant to understand here is that at the heart of nature of believing in Jesus and having genuine belief is a profound miracle. It's not just a cognitive thing in your brain, an understanding thing. Genuine belief comes via divine revelation and inspiration by the power of Jesus by the Spirit. Yeah? Just as the deaf man and the blind man we're only able to see and hear due to Jesus' direct intervention in their life. So too, the spiritually deaf, 
and the spiritually blind can only come to see and hear and genuinely believe in Jesus by the miraculous intervention of Jesus. Have you got that? Yeah? By, by Jesus actually crying out to heaven on your behalf, Ephatha. <laughs> I don't know if you know your Aramaic. It's a, it's a great word, isn't it? Ephatha. If I'm pronouncing it right, I'm probably not. I don't care. I'll have a go anyway. All right? Ephatha is just be opened. Be opened. So Jesus is sticking his fingers in this guy's ears saying, be opened. But the ultimate miracle that Jesus is wanting to do is to actually call out, be opened in your ears and your hearts to hear and understand the voice of God and really accept and believe in what he's done in Jesus. In our minds and in our hearts, there needs to be a miracle for belief to exist. Genuine belief is a true miracle of Jesus. In fact, I'll put it like this. Genuine belief is the greatest miracle of all. It's the most spectacular, supernatural event that could ever happen for you in your life. It just may not always be perceived as a spectacular, supernatural event. Partly because, and typically for adults... When an adult comes to belief, it's usually a bit of a process because there's usually a heck of a lot of unlearning in order to really learn and accept. And so it can take time and it doesn't feel spectacular. It can feel gradual and very normal and cognitive. But really, for anyone to come to belief in Jesus, a profound miracle has happened or is in the process of happening, however you want to describe it, it's miraculous. It's just that we are... Um, way more easily impressed by physical healings. Are we not? I mean, you can see them. It's, it's way easier to be impressed by them. And it's way, it was the same in Jesus' day. The crowds were following him because they were impressed by physical healings and everyone wanted it. So I think the challenge for us is to actually truly be impressed, most of all, by spiritual healing, by a person coming to belief. Yeah? But we don't. And over the years, I've heard people say um, many times in almost a disappointed fashion, oh, I've never really seen many miracles. I've never seen much miraculous go on. You know, and, and by that, what they're saying, what they're meaning is I haven't seen many physical healings. And oh, it doesn't happen in my church. Maybe that means my church is not very spiritual, which could be true, but not necessarily true. I think here's the question to be asking. If you want to talk about miraculous... You want to be part of a supernatural church? You want to be part of a spirit-filled church? Here's the question for us to be asking and be most interested in. Are people coming to believe in Jesus? Are people who have walked away coming back to believe again in Jesus? And are those people who have become believers persevering in their belief so that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time, they are deeper in their belief and still strong in their belief and particularly have grown able to persevere through suffering and hang on to their belief and actually see their belief strengthened. There, my friends, is a profound spiritual activity. There's a spiritual church where God is using it to do the ultimate miracle. Yeah? Now, don't get me wrong. 
Pray for physical healing. If you are sick, cry out to God that he would heal you. He is able to heal you and has healed people through the centuries, obviously and clearly. When you come across someone and you're chatting before church, after church, and they share with you something that's going on, pray for each other, as you feel comfortable to do. Don't feel like there needs to be a special person pray. You don't need to come and pray with a pastor or pray in a special spot. Just pray for each other. When things come up in home groups, you know, pray for healing and trust that God can heal. And if he intends to, he will heal. And trust that there will be moments where we get to enjoy that kind of healing and celebrate it when it comes, for sure. We won't make a big show of doing that in church. I don't think we'd necessarily want to get people up the front all the time and pray for healing, partly because I don't think ever Jesus ever kind of set up healing meetings. It, it, it seemed to find him, but he didn't go chasing it. Yeah? But pray. Pray for physical healing. But, but here's the thing. Here's what's going to be harder to do than to get excited when someone gets healed physically. It's always going to be harder to be just as excited or even more excited about spiritual healing. So let's give ourselves to being determined to be focused on and excited about people coming to belief in Jesus. Let's keep trying to shape this growing community of believers to have sharp eyes for that and, and willingness to celebrate that whenever we see evidence of it. Whether it's a new person coming to faith or whether it's someone coming back or whether it's someone actually just kind of catching things and growing deeper which we hope it's happened for all of us. Let's be focused on that miracle. Yeah? You might be able to show me a church where it's got the appearance and the perception of being supernatural activity going on everywhere, and that's good and fine, but uh, uh, give me a church where there's deep, genuine conversions to Jesus happening and true repentance of sin happening, and 20 years down the track, they're still believing there's a truly miraculous work. I want to be part of that. Let's give ourselves to that ongoingly. Yeah? The real miracle is a long game. Yeah? We love a short game. We love an instant exciting thing that happens. We get dopamine hits whenever we tap coloured buttons on our phones and they make noises. And we love a bit of dopamine, but I tell you what, the real miracle is the long game that happens for a person and keeps happening for a person. Harder to spot in the moment sometimes. But it's the real deal. So I'll finish. And I'll say this. If you are a believer, if you would say, yeah, I've got genuine saving faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and I understand the cross and this is me, just something miraculous has happened for you. Celebrate that. Just stop and keep noticing that. You're not in this simply because someone told you about it when you were young or you grew up in a family where that happened or you went to a school where that happened or you just somehow figured it out on your own by reading books. No, no, you are a believer because God has come to you in the person of Jesus and he's actually stuck his fingers in your ears and he spat on your tongue and he said, be opened. And you've been opened up to see it's true. You've been opened up to believe it's real. And if that's you, a miracle has happened. Let the miracle continue as you go deeper and deeper in your belief. 
and enjoy that miracle happening in your life and count it as a miracle and celebrate it as miraculous. Let's get better at doing that as the years tick by. Keep your, soft heart to, keep your heart soft towards the Lord. Um, and, and finally, if, you, if, you're not, if you're someone who's honest enough to say, yep, haven't got it yet. I haven't got genuine belief yet. That's the most, that's the most helpful thing you can ever acknowledge is where you really are. And if you haven't got it yet, I'd encourage you to do this. Hunt Jesus down. Go looking for those fingers that he can stick in your ear. And try and get him to spit on your tongue. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? But I just interrogate this Jesus character. Go after finding the best answer to that question, who is Jesus? Yeah? Go after him and cry out to God. God, if you're real, can you do this miracle in me? You try crying that one out. God's going to answer that one. Do this miracle in me. Um, Let me pray and then we're going to share in communion together. Father God, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for these colourful, entertaining almost miracles that your son Jesus did. But more than that, we, we thank you for what this shows us about the nature of belief and how it is truly miraculous. Father, those of us who have been brought to belief in your son, we thank you. We thank you for opening up our ears, opening up our eyes and doing a work that only you can do. Thank you. Help us celebrate it. And and Lord, we ask that you would do that miracle in more and more people around us. We long for those who yet have come to see who your son is and what he's done. Please, we beg of you, Lord, do that miracle more and more so. And would you give us the joy of seeing it happen and, and do it ultimately for the sake of your glory and your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We can keep those Bibles open at Mark chapter 8. And um, there are handouts on the seats around you if you want to use the back of that to scribble some notes and follow along with this passage this week. Um, it's, it's getting Christmassy, isn't it? Look at this. The, um, the Adventist church have just put up some cool things and it looks nice. Right. Getting ready for Christmas. If there's one thing that I'm picking up from the book of Mark, and hopefully you're with me on this, it's that the author, Mark, is really wanting us to ask a question, or at least get a really good answer to this question. Um, and, and, and he keeps trying to get us there with everything he does. The way he pulls together this biography of Jesus, Mark wants us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And in fact, more than just casually asking that question, and the author here is trying to get us to interrogate that question and make sure you've got a really good, cracking, solid answer to that question. Who is Jesus? We're kind of at a turning point in the book here now in Mark's Gospel. It's the halfway point where we're going to kind of finish up at chapter 8 and then we'll pick it up again next year and do the second half. But here in chapter 8, there's an incident where Jesus asked this very question to his disciples. And it, and it really matters. So zoom in there right off the bat with me. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on. <laughs> I 
Should I go now, dude? <laughs> um, okay, so we're reading from Mark eight twenty-two to 30. Um, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some brought, people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man and held by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, um, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his eyes on the man's, put his hands on the eyes, and then Jesus asked him to open, and his sight was restored. And then he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do you say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Thanks, Koopy Legend. Thanks, Vince, you legend. We can keep those Bibles open at Mark chapter 8. And um, there are handouts on the seats around you if you want to use the back of that to scribble some notes and follow along with this passage this week. Um, it's, it's getting Christmassy, isn't it? Look at this, the, um, the Adventist church have just put up some cool things and it looks nice. Right. Getting ready for Christmas. If there's one thing that I'm picking up from the book of Mark, and hopefully you're with me on this, it's that the author, Mark, is really wanting us to ask a question, or at least get a really good answer to this question. Um, and, and, and he keeps trying to get us there with everything he does. The way he pulls together this biography of Jesus. Mark wants us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And in fact, more than just casually asking that question, and the author here is trying to get us to interrogate that question and make sure you've got a really good, cracking, solid answer to that question. Who is Jesus? We're kind of at a turning point in the book here now in Mark's Gospel. It's the halfway point. Um, where, where, where we're going to kind of finish up at chapter 8 and then we'll pick it up again next year and do the second half. But here in chapter 8, there's an incident where Jesus asked this very question to his disciples. And it, and it really matters. So zoom in there right off the bat with me. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So Jesus first asks the disciples about what other people think of him. What are the different ideas that people have got about me? It, Jesus is really interested because actually nothing matters more than the way you answer this question. And the disciples answer him, oh, there's a variety of ideas basically. So look at the ideas there. They, some say John the Baptist, which is an interesting thing to say considering John the Baptist just lost his head a little while earlier. So some people think that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, got his head put back on. And he's, so some people are thinking that. Um, others are thinking that Jesus is Elijah, which is a classic Old Testament prophet, probably because of some of the feeding miracles that Jesus did, which is kind of similar to some of the things that went on in Elijah's ministry. Um, and, and then he says, and some say just a prophet. 
Meaning, you're just this figure that's come who's kind of powerful in your speech um, and in your miracles that you're doing. So you're just another prophet that's come along. There's, there's a variety of ideas about what people think about Jesus. And then Jesus does this thing to the disciples. He goes, but what about you guys? What do you reckon? And I love this moment. Look, 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 look what he says there. Verse 39, 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? I love this moment. It's so direct. Jesus is so interested in who they think he is. Jesus is still very interested in who you think he is. More, more than anything else, can, can I just ask, ask you to consider Jesus right up in your face right now and looking you in the eyes saying, who, who do you think I am? What do you honestly believe about me deep down? Um, he's most interested in this question because the way you answer this question will actually impact the whole of your eternity. Who do you think Jesus is? So here he is coming straight at his disciples and here Jesus coming for you tonight. Who do you really think he is? Now look at the answer that's given and it's given by the, what would you call Peter? The um, self-appointed spokesperson for the disciples. He loves to just pipe in whenever he gets the opportunity to speak up on behalf of everybody and also just to put his foot in it as well as putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's a classic, I love Peter, and he's got more in this passage as well. Um, But Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples, and look at the answer he gives, it's a cracker. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So Peter nails it. You know, the Messiah means the Christ, which is like this long-awaited king who would finally come and redeem Israel and lead his people. To freedom again. And so here's Peter saying, you're the Messiah, we've got it. it it's, and, and it's so good to see the disciples at this point, really, because they've been bumbling along for a while as they've been following Jesus, Yep, unsure really of who he is. They know he's a rabbi and a good teacher, but, but they're kind of shocked by what he does. And, and they're even fearful when they're in his presence of him sometimes. So they, they really are still trying to figure it out. But it's almost like we arrive at this moment and it's like they finally get it. And Jesus goes, who do you think I am? And they go, we figured it out. <laughs> You're the Messiah. Um, and, and they nail it. They get it. Or have they got it? That's the question to ask. Because when you read on, you realise, oh, okay. They might have used the word Messiah. They might have got the title of Jesus right. But what they're thinking in their minds when they say Messiah is pretty different from the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. What, what they're expecting from Jesus, the King, the long-awaited King, is actually really different from what Jesus plans to do. So they've got the word right, they've got the title right, but the substance behind it is actually way off, or at least super underdeveloped. And instead of Jesus going, cool, you've got Messiah, um, but your concept's a little bit right, it's okay, we'll work it out, it actually gets pretty intense in this moment. Because what happens is, after they say, you are the Messiah, Jesus goes, great, let me explain to you what I'm about to do as Messiah. And, And look at what he goes on to say. So verse 31. He then began to teach them what that the Son of Man, speaking about himself in the third person, he, said, he goes to teach them what the Son of Man must suffer many things. So here's what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things and then I'm going to be rejected 
by the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed. And after that, three days, after three days, rise again. And Jesus spoke plainly about this to the disciples. So, so they say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus goes, good, got it, let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and then I'm going to be killed. Got it? And they go, what? That, you know, Peter, literally, he's, it's like his head explodes because that is not what he's got in his mind as the Messiah. And in fact, he's, he's, Peter feels so strongly about it. Look what he does. He, that's Jesus, spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to ask polite questions about what he means by that. No, no. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. So as, as Jesus has been saying this, Peter's like, oh, no, he's got it very wrong, the poor fella. Jesus, come over here for a sec, mate. Takes him off the side, puts his arm around him and goes, mate, I just need to unpack for you. You've got it pretty wrong. And he starts to correct him. And in fact, the word rebuke is pretty strong. It's like, mate, you are way off. I don't know what you're thinking with this suffering business and this being rejected business and this dying business. No, no, that is not the plan. And he works hard to correct Jesus. What is the picture that Peter had in mind anyway? What's the idea that your classic Jewish person in the first century had, typically, of what the Messiah would come and do? Well, they knew the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel. But the way they were expecting the Messiah to do that was to basically try and do a repeat of history. To come and be the kind of king like the good old days. And so in Peter's mind, he's thinking back to King David, King Solomon, and the time when Israel was a superpower. So he's expecting the Messiah, and most of the Jews are expecting this, the Messiah would come be the king of Israel again, release Israel from the rule of the Romans and become again the superpower where the headquarters is in Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting Jesus to be. In fact, if the first century Jews could have a T-shirt with a slogan on it that represented what they were expecting from the Messiah, this would be the slogan, something like this, to make Israel great again. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? That's what Peter's expecting. Awesome superpower. Let's get rid of this oppressive enemy Rome and let's become epic again and let's rule again and that's what it's all about. And I'll tell you what, Jesus has come as the Messiah to redeem his people but not in an earthly kingdom in the same way that they were expecting. There's a whole bunch of things they've missed and, and really the way Jesus is going to do it is by suffering and being rejected and dying. That is how he's going to rule. That's how he's going to reign. That's how he's going to redeem. And it's nothing like what they were thinking. In fact, it's what Peter's got in his mind is so far off. And it's such a problem that it's so far off. That Jesus says, for you to think that way about me. And for you to expect me to be that kind of a king is for you to basically side with the great enemy of God. I mean, look at the language Jesus uses here. It's so important that Peter and the disciples get the right idea about Messiah. That Look at the language. Jesus comes back at Peter, verse 
33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he doesn't just let Peter get away with this. He, he says to Peter, effectively calls Peter Satan. In other words, what, what you're doing here, the way you're thinking, the way you're rebuking me, you're with the enemy. You, you, you're actually making yourself the enemy of God and the enemy of God's plans, which involve me coming to be the Messiah in the way God intended you're siding with the enemy. This is huge. It's a big problem. It's not just a slight difference that needs to be corrected. Jesus is not going to let go of this one because it's not enough to just have the title. It's not enough just to get the words right or the phrase right. You've got to get the substance right. They've got the word, they've got the phrase, but the substance is all wrong behind the phrase. And, 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 and for us, we can reflect on this somewhat as well. It's possible entirely, isn't it, for people to consider themselves to be Christians and get some of the phrases right and the titles right and get the words right coming out of your mouth but have a really different idea about those things from what Jesus might have in mind. But we can do the same thing. Think, think about it with me. It's entirely possible for you or me or someone today to be thinking about themselves as a Christian and saying things like, yeah, I'm a, I believe in God. But, but what they mean by that is, well, I believe there is a God and that he's the one that likely made everything. But they're yet to come to believe in the big thing that God has actually done in his son Jesus on the cross. That, 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 that's not part of the belief, but... A person might be thinking, and maybe this is you today, you're like, I believe in God, surely that's enough. Don't I? Do you believe in the big thing God did <laughs> by sending his son? Because that, that's really what it means to believe in God. Or, or you could be someone who, this is, it's easy to do this, it's, it'd be someone who's figured out how to belong to a church, fit in and be helpful and um, you know, contribute and, and, and feel like that because you belong to a mob of Christians and you're part of the community and, and a valued part of the community that you, you're all right, but it's entirely possible to belong to a church community but yet to actually have a personal saving relationship with Jesus. Yep. I think churches around our nation, around our world can, can easily be filled with people who love the sense of belonging. It's part of what God's got for us. It's awesome to belong to God's people and function as part of it but to to do that and actually miss the personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus is to miss the guts of this yeah so it's easy to have the phrases and some of the concepts but miss the heart you know I think it's even easy to um, for a person to use the word salvation in regards to Jesus and to be a person who says um, talks about themselves as being saved I got saved at a certain point uh, and I've been saved by Jesus. But you can use that language. And here's the classic thing I hear these days. You use the language about being saved by Jesus. But what the person means is that they've been saved from failing to reach their full potential. And effectively see Jesus as coming and existing is actually to just really help their life to be all that it can be. And that's the definition of salvation. So the definition of sin in that picture really is sin is failing to be all that you can be. And there's some truth to that. But if you leave sin defined as that, 
then you actually will miss what Jesus will tell you about sin, which is way more hardcore. Sin is actually the diseased heart that you have that makes you, by nature, actually desire to, at times, and means to reject and rebel and offend um, and, and betray the one who made you and loves you. That, that's sin. That's heavy. That's not simply not reaching your full potential. That's almost like a, a secularised version or picture of salvation. So do you see what I'm getting at? Though? Like you can use the word saved. I've been saved by Jesus. But what do you mean by saved? What do you think you've been saved from? Because if you can't articulate what sin is and the problem with sin and how you personally need to be saved from your sin, then your picture of salvation may be very different from what Jesus would have you understand, in which case, he, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. Yeah? You know, I think it's... Here's, here's another version, and this is the final one I give you. Um, and I think we're all in this space on some level, and that is the concept of understanding sin and understanding how the cross works and how blood is shed so we can be forgiven and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus. So you get, you get salvation and you even get the cross but you don't quite yet get the concept of lordship. So you receive Jesus as saviour, but you haven't quite got him as lord yet. You haven't in your heart decided to humbly submit to his lordship in, in all of your life and to let him rule and to, and to actually desire with your life by the power of the Spirit to obey him and let it cost you to obey him. And that is your worship, a life of obedience yeah, and, and, and on some level, we're all in that picture. All those of us who genuinely put our faith in Jesus, we're, we're in a sense still working out how to submit more and more, how to actually have him and live with Jesus as your Lord in all areas of life. We're all got development in that regard. But it could, it could be that you've got the salvation thing and it's like a bus pass. You pop it in your back pocket and you think, good, I'll pull that out on the final day and I'll show that at the pearly gates. And then you just get on with your life without realising that you're meant to be living with him as your Lord, under his lordship. Yeah. So where are you at? Where are you at with your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done? And, 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 and dig into the substance of that, not just the terms and the titles and the phrases. Because you can trick people, you can trick yourself. I'd learn how to say the right sentences, but have you got the guts of this? Because Jesus wants you to get the guts of it because without the guts of it, you haven't really got it. Yeah? This concept of what it takes to become a genuine believer, which is almost what's on view for us here with the disciples. It's like they're on a journey. They're on a path towards genuine belief. They haven't got it yet, but they've got something. This concept of what it takes to be a genuine believer, I think, is illustrated by the healing miracles in this section of Mark's Gospel. And I think that's what he's done. So if you've been reading this passage during the week and you've seen the healing miracles there, here is why I think Mark has arranged this chapter the way he has. He pulls these miracles in as almost illustrations to help us understand some concepts about belief. And real, genuine belief. So let's look at the two miracles and just enjoy the detail, really, in these miracles. And then see how it points us to help us understand something about genuine belief. Because this is the big thing. 
that the disciples are trying to get. And it's the big thing that we need to get. So the two miracles there are, you get one at the end of chapter 7, the deaf and mute man. And you get one in chapter 8 that we just had read to us in verse 22. Let's start with the deaf and mute man and we'll just um, look at the details here. They're awesome. So verse 31 in chapter 7. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went down to Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. It's similar to the paralytic that gets brought and lowered down through the roof to Jesus. This guy's got mates who are bringing him to Jesus as well. This guy's deaf and, and, and he can hardly speak. Maybe it means he's been deaf since birth and because he's, he's never been able to hear um, the way you speak. And so this is his situation. Um, verse 33, after he took... Uh, that's Jesus. After Jesus took him aside... Away from the crowd, notice that, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit, or we could say spat, and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Afatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. How cool is that? How's the detail in that? It's amazing, isn't it? Like, Jesus doesn't just go, you're healed. There's, there's all these other things going on. Jesus gets his fingers, and he puts his fingers into the guy's ear holes. And then Jesus spits, probably onto his own hand. Some of you are like looking at me like this, right? You can look at Jesus like that, all right? He spits onto his own hand, and he wipes it on the guy's tongue. Like, this is, this is theatre, isn't it? Like, well, you've got to figure out what's going on here. I mean, I, I can't help but to be reminded of what we used to get up to at school. Like, did you ever, did you ever do that where you, you wet your finger with your spit and your slobber and you sneak up behind someone who you love and you um, stick it in their ear hole? It's just, it was just me and my mates. There's a few nods. It's called a wet willy. If you've never heard of a wet willy, it's disgusting, all right? It's absolutely gross. Um, I just never knew how spiritual we were being when we did that in the school ground it certainly um, didn't heal anyone that's for sure probably did the opposite of that sticking fingers in ears spitting and wiping it on tongues this is Jesus do you like Jesus <laughs> have a look at the other miracle and then we'll come back to some of these details in a minute um, so the healing of the blind man chapter 8 verse 22 they came to Bethsaida and some people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So a similar scenario, friends bring the blind man um, to Jesus, they want him healed. Um, look at this, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. Jesus said, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. It, this one's like a two-stage miracle. Yeah? We're going to look at that detail in a little bit as well. But just, you sit back from those two and the, the things I think you notice most clearly of, as far as commonalities, there's a whole bunch of them, is, is number one, that Jesus takes the person outside the village away from the crowd and number two, all the touching and the spitting. All right? So let's just... 
Think about those two things for a minute. Outside the village, away from the crowd, I think what you see clearly here with the way Jesus ministers is he's concerned for the person, not the performance. He's not trying to whip up a frenzy. He's trying to run from the crowd and the frenzy majority of the time. But he is interested in the person. And in this situation, he takes the person one-on-one. He takes them away from the crowd to be with them and show his compassion for them and heal them in a very personal way. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, this, this artwork that's been up in church through this whole series, we actually didn't preach on this particular passage, but this is the moment where that woman in the crowd, she's, she thinks she's surrounded by everyone else, but she ends up being able to have this beautiful personal moment with Jesus where she reaches out and just touches his cloak and Jesus notices He noticed that something's happened and he knew this was going to happen and he turns around and engages with her on such a beautiful personal level and there's healing there and this is what Jesus is like. Yeah, He knows, he sees, he has compassion on the individual and he knows you and he sees you. No one knows you properly, not even the best of your friends or your spouse or your closest family member, no one really knows what's going on in that head of yours (laughs) or what's swimming around in the heart of yours, only what you choose to share or what some people perceive. But Jesus knows. He knows you. He sees you. He hears everything going on in your head. He feels what you're feeling. And he loves you. And he's able to draw near to you and have compassion on you and be with you. This is the Jesus we have. Someone who knows you like no one else will and is able to have compassion on you and care for you like no one else can. Jesus cares for you. Yep, better than that person next to you. As awesome as they are. Or as the person in your mind that you dream that you hope one day you'll meet and all your dreams will come true. Yeah, got nothing on Jesus. And then there's all this touching and spitting, which is a bit odd. Um, It's clear that Jesus can heal without touching or spitting because there's lots of other incidences. So he didn't have to do it this way. Yep. Um, But he chooses to. And and I wonder where it's got something to do with him taking them out away from the crowd too. It's this kind of moment and there's intimacy involved in this moment and there's connection. Um, Now... In the ancient world, to spit, it could either be to curse or to bless. Yeah, you, you, might, you might know when Jesus is arrested, um, he's spat on in that moment, which is not to bless him. That's to curse him. It's to humiliate him. It's to degrade him. In the same way that if someone spat on you today, you, you likely would feel pretty degraded. Yep. Um, so to spit on someone could be to degrade them, but it could also be something else, and even a, a sign of a blessing in the ancient world. So you've got to try and get your head into the first century Jewish world here. Um, sometimes sacred agreements would be sealed with some saliva in different ways. Sometimes. Sometimes saliva was used because it was considered to have healing properties, particularly on eyes and things like that. And so saliva was used in the ancient world um, to, to help with healing. And recovery. And, and there are some studies today, I don't want to pretend I know anything about this kind of stuff, but there are some studies that point out some goodies in your saliva. 
but also some baddies as well. You're probably better off going to the doctors or going to see one of the doctors in this hospital rather than just spitting on what the problem is. However, because that's common in the mind of a first century person, it's likely Jesus had that in mind and, and used this, I want, I want to say theatre or even miming to just make it really clear what his intention is to do in this moment. So no one would miss um, who the healing comes from and how it's happened. Yep. So there's, there's spitting and there's touching and I think it's intentional. It's like an acted parable that you can't miss. Jesus really wants to display to this person particularly where their healing has come from. And picture, if you're a blind person, you, you might not be confident who's healed you, you know? But Jesus touches and spits. And the deaf person, you know, who might, can't hear who the person is and their voice as they speak. They need to be touched. So here's Jesus drawing near, making it clear and, and, and going extra personal and intimate with the healing. I think that's what's happening. Interesting anyway, isn't it? Getting the spit happening. However, the big thing that's important to get is, um, I think, when you sit back from looking at these two miracles... They teach us something about the nature of belief, which is the bigger thing to catch. It's bigger than physical healing, this concept of deep, genuine belief in Jesus. And I think these two miracles are positioned the way they are to help us understand something about the disciples and their belief that's emerging and also to help us understand something about the very nature of belief. So two things i got for you. The first thing is by noticing the two-stage healing of the blind man, I think it helps us understand um, there's somewhat of a two-stage belief or a gradual belief happening for the disciples, particularly here in this moment. Um, now, think with me for a minute. The, the, the blind guy, Jesus says, can you see after he first spits on him and touches him? Can you see? And the blind guy says... Well, I see trees and they're walking around. So has he been healed? Partially. He can see something. He's never been able to see anything before. And he's seeing trees walking around. It's like Lord of the Rings or... Actually, I don't know those kind of movies, but you know the movies. Is it Lord of the Rings where the trees walk around? There you go. There you go. I know what I'm talking about here. Right? <laughs> the guy says, I see trees walking around. And, and this is not... Jesus is not like, ah, oh, whoops, meant to heal you properly. We'll give him another go. No, no, this is really deliberate. He's doing it in two stages because he chooses to do it this way. And then he puts his hands on him again and this time the man is, has his sight fully restored. Now, what's with this? I think Jesus does it this way and Mark includes it in this to help us understand something about belief and, and particularly what's happening for the disciples. It's like they get it. It's like they can see because they say, you're the Messiah, but they can't really see yet. They haven't got clarity on what the Messiah is. For the disciples, their belief is like emerging. It's like it's gradual or it's in stages. They can partly see, but they haven't quite got it yet. It's like they're partly healed of their unbelief, but not fully yet. Yeah? And, and you see evidence of this all, all through the book of Mark where the disciples are still trying to get it. Like, did, did you notice the second feeding miracle in Mark's gospel? You got the feeding in the 5,000. We did, looked at that last week. But then here in chapter 7 or 8, 7, 8, 
at the start of eight, there's the feeding of the 4,000. It's like, it's like Jesus goes, okay, I'm going to repeat this lesson, see if they got it this time. Oh, no bread. What are we going to do? And the disciples are like, we don't know. Where are we going to get bread from? It's like, oh, seriously? You didn't, like we just did this a few days ago or however long it was ago. They're, they're slow to catch it. They haven't got it yet. Their belief is emerging. They haven't yet learned to trust that Jesus can and will provide. It's like their spiritual eyes and ears are not quite open yet. Now, before we apply this directly to us, we've got to be a little bit careful um, because um, I think what's happening for the disciples here is it's, it's a unique situation. What you've got here in the ministry of Jesus and soon afterwards is the overlap of the ages. You've got the old covenant and you've got the new covenant of the Spirit. And this ministry of Jesus is in the midst of it all. It's like a transitional moment. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. So you answer me this question. When did the disciples become Christians? Was it, was it when they first started following Jesus? Was it, was it when they first saw some miracles? Was it in this moment where they say the Messiah? Was it at the Transfiguration? Was it at Pentecost? Was it kind of almost even after Pentecost? When did they really get it? It's, it's gradual for them. It's unique for them. It's, it's, it's a bit different for them. Because living now fully in the age of the Spirit, we understand how salvation and belief works. Um, regeneration by the Holy Spirit happens for a person to enable belief. Yep. So there's no such thing as almost a Christian for us today. You either are or you're not. You've either received the Spirit or you haven't. You've either put your trust in Jesus or you haven't. But there's something slightly different going on here. So you've got to be careful about applying it directly to us. But can I give you a little example of how the concept can be applied to us somewhat? And that's this. There's, there, is, there is a sense in which for all of us who would say we've got Jesus and we've got salvation, we know he's our Lord, that we're all still on this journey of progression and maturity towards really understanding and living for Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's happening for all of us on some level. Um, so when Jesus warns the Pharisees and he says, be careful of the yeast, sorry, warns the disciples, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees, um, I think we need to be careful of that as well in that the yeast is the concept of the evil that the Pharisees have got, their hard-heartedness towards Jesus, their refusal to accept who he is, and I think this is what we need to be careful of as well. Just watch your hard heart. There'll be a certain amount you know and understand and believe, but there'll be more for you to understand and the thing that can be holding you back from actually growing and getting clarity about your belief and going deeper in your belief actually is not simply just an intellectual exercise. It can be the condition of your heart. Hard-heartedness can hold us back from really accepting Jesus and we find ourselves still resisting him in subtle ways. So where are you at? What's happening for you? Where are you stuck? Where's the development that still is yet to happen for you? To go deeper in your belief and more serious about your worship and your service, living under the Lordship. Like where are you at and what's, it, what's stopping you from moving forward? And God's intention is that we would all be growing. He promises, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, God who began a good work in you, he wants to bring it to completion. So we're all a work in, a progr in progress. Let's, let's, 
partner with Jesus in this work that he's doing in us. There's the first thing. Here's the second thing and the final thing. The second way in which these miracles help us understand something significant about, a belief, is, about belief is this. Belief is miraculous. Belief is miraculous. It's, it's kind of easy to look at someone who gets healed physically and go, wow, miraculous. But I think what we're meant to understand here is that at the heart of nature of believing in Jesus and having genuine belief is a profound miracle. It's not just a cognitive thing in your brain, an understanding thing. Genuine belief comes via divine revelation and inspiration by the power of Jesus, by the Spirit. Yeah? Just as the deaf man and the blind man were only able to see and hear due to Jesus' direct intervention in their life, so too... The spiritually deaf and the spiritually blind can only come to see and hear and genuinely believe in Jesus by the miraculous intervention of Jesus. Have you got that? Yeah? By, by Jesus actually crying out to heaven on your behalf, Ephatha. <laughs> I don't know if you know your Aramaic. It's a, it's a great word, isn't it? Ephatha. If I'm pronouncing it right, I'm probably not. I don't care, I'll have a go anyway, all right? A father is just be opened. Be opened. So Jesus is sticking his fingers in this guy's ear saying, be opened. But the ultimate miracle that Jesus is wanting to do is to actually call out, be opened in your ears and your hearts to hear and understand the voice of God and really accept and believe in what he's done in Jesus in our minds and in our hearts, there needs to be a miracle for belief to exist. Genuine belief is a true miracle of Jesus. In fact, I'll put it like this. Genuine belief is the greatest miracle of all. It's the most spectacular, supernatural event that could ever happen for you in your life. It just may not always be perceived as a spectacular supernatural event. Partly because, and typically for adults, when an adult comes to belief, it's usually a bit of a process. Because there's usually a heck of a lot of unlearning in order to really learn and accept. And so it can take time and it doesn't feel spectacular. It can feel gradual and very normal and cognitive. But really, for anyone to come to belief in Jesus, a profound miracle has happened or is in the process of happening, however you want to describe it, it's miraculous. It's just that we are um, way more easily impressed by physical healings. Are we not? I mean, you can see them. It's, it's way easier to be impressed by them. And it's way, it was the same in Jesus' day. The crowds were following him because they were impressed by physical healings, and everyone wanted it. So I think the challenge for us is to actually truly be impressed, most of all, by spiritual healing, by a person coming to belief. Yeah, But we don't. And over the years, I've heard people say um, many times, in almost a disappointed fashion, oh, I've never really seen many miracles. I've never seen much miraculous go on. You know? and, and by that, what they're saying, what they're meaning is I haven't seen many physical healings. 
and oh, it doesn't happen in my church. Maybe that means my church is not very spiritual, which could be true, but not necessarily true. I think here's the question to be asking. If you want to talk about miraculous, you want to be part of a supernatural church, you want to be part of a spirit-filled church, here's the question for us to be asking and be most interested in. Are people coming to believe in Jesus? Are people who have walked away coming back to believe again in Jesus? And are those people who have become believers persevering in their belief so that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time, they are deeper in their belief and still strong in their belief and particularly have grown able to persevere through suffering and hang on to their belief and actually see their belief strengthened. There, my friends, is a profound spiritual activity. There's a spiritual church where God is using it to do the ultimate miracle. Yeah? Now, don't get me wrong. Pray for physical healing. If you are sick, cry out to God that he would heal you. He is able to heal you and has healed people through the centuries, obviously and clearly. When you come across someone and you're chatting before church, after church, and they share with you something that's going on, pray for each other as you feel comfortable to do. Don't feel like there needs to be a special person pray. You don't need to come and pray with a pastor or pray in a special spot. Just pray for each other. When things come up in home groups, you know, pray for healing and trust that God can heal. And if he intends to, he will heal. And trust that there will be moments where we get to enjoy that kind of healing and celebrate it when it comes, for sure. We won't make a big show of doing that in church. I don't think we'd necessarily want to get people up the front all the time and pray for healing, partly because I don't think ever Jesus ever kind of set up healing meetings. It, it, it seemed to find him, but he didn't go chasing it. Yeah? But pray. Pray for physical healing. But, but here's the thing. Here's what's going to be harder to do than to get excited when someone gets healed physically. It's always going to be harder to be just as excited or even more excited about spiritual healing. So let's give ourselves to being determined to be focused on and excited about people coming to belief in Jesus. Let's keep trying to shape this growing community of believers to have sharp eyes for that and, and willingness to celebrate that whenever we see evidence of it. Whether it's a new person coming to faith or whether it's someone coming back or whether it's someone actually just kind of catching things and growing deeper which we hope it's happened for all of us. Let's be focused on that miracle. Yeah? You might be able to show me a church where it's got the appearance and the perception of being supernatural activity going on everywhere, and that's good and fine, but uh, uh, give me a church where there's deep, genuine conversions to Jesus happening and true repentance of sin happening, and 20 years down the track, they're still believing there's a truly miraculous work. I want to be part of that. Let's give ourselves to that ongoingly. Yeah? The real miracle is a long game. Yeah? We love a short game. We love an instant exciting thing that happens. We get dopamine hits whenever we tap coloured buttons on our phones and they make noises. And we love a bit of dopamine, but I tell you what, the real miracle 
is the long game that happens for a person and keeps happening for a person. Harder to spot in the moment sometimes, but it's the real deal. So I'll finish and I'll say this. If you are a believer, if you would say, yeah, I've got genuine saving faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and I understand the cross and this is me, just something miraculous has happened for you. Celebrate that. Just stop and keep noticing that. You're not in this simply because someone told you about it when you were young or you grew up in a family where that happened or you went to a school where that happened or you just somehow figured it out on your own by reading books. No, no. You are a believer because God has come to you in the person of Jesus and he's actually stuck his fingers in your ears and he spat on your tongue and he said, be opened. And you've been opened up to see it's true. You've been opened up to believe it's real. And if that's you, a miracle has happened. Let the miracle continue as you go deeper and deeper in your belief. And enjoy that miracle happening. And count it as a miracle. And celebrate it as miraculous. Let's get better at doing that as the years tick by. Keep your, soft heart, keep your heart soft towards the Lord. Um, and finally, if you're, not, if you're someone who's honest enough to say, Yep, haven't got it yet. I haven't got genuine belief yet. That's the, most, that's the most helpful thing you can ever acknowledge is where you really are. And if you haven't got it yet, I'd encourage you to do this. Hunt Jesus down. Go looking for those fingers that he can stick in your ear and try and get him to spit on your tongue. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? But I just interrogate this Jesus character. Go after finding the best answer to that question, who is Jesus? Yeah, Go after him and cry out to God, God, if you're real, can you do this miracle in me? You try crying that one out. God's going to answer that one. Do this miracle in me. Um, let me pray and then we're going to share in communion together. Father God, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for these colourful, entertaining almost miracles that your son Jesus did. But more than that, we, we thank you for what this shows us about the nature of belief and how it is truly miraculous. Father, those of us who have been brought to belief in your son, we thank you. We thank you for opening up our ears, opening up our eyes and doing a work that only you can do. Thank you. Help us celebrate it. And, and Lord, we ask that you would do that miracle in more and more people around us. We long for those who yet have come to see who your son is and what he's done. Please, we beg of you, Lord, do that miracle more and more so. And would you give us the joy of seeing it happen and, and do it ultimately for the sake of your glory and your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Should I go now, <laughs> um, Okay, so we're reading from Mark 8, 22 to 30. Um, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some bro people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man and held uh, by the hand and led him outside the village. 
When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, um, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his eyes on the man's, put his hands on the eyes, and then Jesus asked him to open, and his sight was restored. And then he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do you say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Thanks, Coopy legend. Thanks, Vince, you legend. We can keep those Bibles open at Mark chapter 8. And um, there are handouts on the seats around you if you want to use the back of that to scribble some notes and follow along with this passage this week. Um, it's, it's getting Christmassy, isn't it? Look at this. The, um, the Adventist Church have just put up some cool things and it looks nice. Right. Getting ready for Christmas. If there's one thing that I'm picking up from the book of Mark, and hopefully you're with me on this, it's that the author, Mark, is really wanting us to ask a question, or at least get a really good answer to this question. Um, and, and, and he keeps trying to get us there with everything he does. The way he pulls together this biography of Jesus, Mark wants us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And in fact, more than just casually asking that question, and the author here is trying to get us to interrogate that question. And make sure you've got a really good, cracking, solid answer to that question. Who is Jesus? We're kind of at a turning point in the book here now in Mark's Gospel. It's the halfway point where we're going to kind of finish up at chapter 8 and then we'll pick it up again next year and do the second half. But here in chapter 8, there's an incident where Jesus asked this very question to his disciples. And it really matters. So zoom in there right off the bat with me. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So Jesus first asks the disciples about what other people think of him. What are the different ideas that people have got about me? Jesus is really interested because actually nothing matters more than the way you answer this question. And the disciples answer him, oh, there's a variety of ideas, basically. So look at the ideas there. They, some say John the Baptist, which is an interesting thing to say, considering John the Baptist just lost his head a little while earlier. So some people think that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, got his head put back on. And he's, so some people are thinking that. Um, others are thinking that Jesus is Elijah, which is a classic Old Testament prophet. Probably because of some of the feeding miracles that Jesus did. It's kind of similar to some of the things that went on in Elijah's ministry. Um, and, and then he says, and some say just a prophet. Meaning you're just this figure that's come who's kind of powerful in your speech um, and in your miracles that you're doing. So you're just another prophet that's come along. There's, there's a variety of ideas about what people think about Jesus. And then Jesus does this thing to the disciples. He goes, but what about you guys? What do you reckon? 
And I love this moment. Look, 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 look what he says there. Verse 39, 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? I love this moment. It's so direct. Jesus is so interested in who they think he is. Jesus is still very interested in who you think he is. More, more than anything else, can, can I just ask, ask you to consider Jesus right up in your face right now and looking you in the eyes saying, who, who do you think I am? What do you honestly believe about me deep down? Um, he's most interested in this question because the way you answer this question will actually impact the whole of your eternity. Who do you think Jesus is? So here he is coming straight at his disciples and here Jesus coming for you tonight. Who do you really think he is? Now look at the answer that's given and it's given by the, what would you call Peter? The um, self-appointed spokesperson for the disciples. He loves to just pipe in whenever he gets the opportunity to speak up on behalf of everybody and also just to put his foot in it as well as putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's a classic, I love Peter, and he's got more in this passage as well. Um, But Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples, and look at the answer he gives, it's a cracker. uh, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So Peter nails it. You know, the Messiah means the Christ, which is like this long-awaited king who would finally come and redeem Israel and lead his people to freedom again. And so here's Peter saying, you're the Messiah, we've got it. It, it's, and, and it's so good to see the disciples at this point, really, because they've been bumbling along for a while as they've been following Jesus, Yep, unsure really of who he is. They know he's a rabbi and a good teacher, but, but they're kind of shocked by what he does. And, and they're even fearful when they're in his presence of him sometimes. So they, they really are still trying to figure it out. But it's almost like we arrive at this moment and it's like they finally get it. And Jesus goes, who do you think I am? And they go, we figured it out. (laughs) You're the Messiah. Um, And and they nail it. They get it. Or have they got it? That's the question to ask. Because when you read on, you realise, oh, okay. They might have used the word Messiah. They might have got the title of Jesus right. But what they're thinking in their minds when they say Messiah is pretty different from the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. What, what they're expecting from Jesus, the King, the long-awaited King, is actually really different from what Jesus plans to do. So they've got the word right, they've got the title right, but the substance behind it is actually way off, or at least super underdeveloped. And instead of Jesus going, cool, you've got Messiah, um, but your concept's a little bit right, it's okay, we'll work it out. It actually gets pretty intense in this moment. Because what happens is, after they say, you are the Messiah, Jesus goes, great, let me explain to you what I'm about to do as Messiah. And, And look at what he goes on to say. So verse 31. He then began to teach them what that the Son of Man, speaking about himself in the third person, He he goes to teach them what the Son of Man must suffer many things. So here's what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things and then I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and then he must be killed and after that three days, after three days rise again. 
And Jesus spoke plainly about this to the disciples. So, so they say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus goes, good, got it, let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and then I'm going to be killed. Got it? And they go, what? That, you know, Peter, literally, he's, it's like his head explodes because that is not what he's got in his mind as the Messiah. And in fact, he's, he's, Peter feels so strongly about it. Look what he does. He, that's Jesus, spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to ask polite questions about what he means by that. No, no. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. So as, as Jesus has been saying this, Peter's like, oh, no, he's got it very wrong, the poor fella. Jesus, come over here for a sec, mate. Takes him off the side, puts his arm around him and goes, mate, I just need to unpack for you. You've got it pretty wrong. And he starts to correct him. And in fact, the word rebuke is pretty strong. It's like, mate, you are way off. I don't know what you're thinking with this suffering business and this being rejected business and this dying business. No, no, that is not the plan. And he works hard to correct Jesus. What is the picture that Peter had in mind anyway? What's the idea that your classic Jewish person in the first century had, typically, of what the Messiah would come and do? Well, they knew the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel. But the way they were expecting the Messiah to do that was to basically try and do a repeat of history. To come and be the kind of king like the good old days. And so in Peter's mind, he's thinking back to King David, King Solomon, and the time when Israel was a superpower. So he's expecting the Messiah, and most of the Jews are expecting this, the Messiah would come be the king of Israel again, release Israel from the rule of the Romans and become again the superpower where the headquarters is in Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting Jesus to be. In fact, if the first century Jews could have a T-shirt with a slogan on it that represented what they were expecting from the Messiah, this would be the slogan, something like this, to make Israel great again. Yeah, does that sound familiar? That's what Peter's expecting. Awesome superpower. Let's get rid of this oppressive enemy Rome and let's become epic again and let's rule again and that's what it's all about. And I'll tell you what, Jesus has come as the Messiah to redeem his people but not in an earthly kingdom in the same way that they were expecting. There's a whole bunch of things they've missed. And, and really the way Jesus is going to do it is by suffering and being rejected and dying, that is how he's going to rule. That's how he's going to reign. That's how he's going to redeem. And it's nothing like what they were thinking. In fact, it's what Peter's got in his mind is so far off, and it's such a problem that it's so far off, that Jesus says, for you to think that way about me, and for you to expect me to be that kind of a king is for you to basically side with the great enemy of God. I mean, look at the language Jesus uses here. It's, it's so important that Peter and the disciples get the right idea about Messiah. That Look at the language. Jesus comes back at Peter, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he doesn't just let Peter get away with this. He, he says 
to Peter effectively calls Peter Satan. In other words, what, what you're doing here, the way you're thinking, the way you're rebuking me, you're with the enemy. You, you, you're actually making yourself the enemy of God and the enemy of God's plans, which involve me coming to be the Messiah in the way God intended. You're siding with the enemy. This is huge. It's a big problem. It's not just a slight difference that needs to be corrected. Jesus is not going to let go of this one because it's not enough to just have the title. It's not enough just to get the words right or the phrase right. You've got to get the substance right. They've got the word, they've got the phrase, but the substance is all wrong behind the phrase. And, 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 and for us, we can reflect on this somewhat as well. It's possible entirely, isn't it, for people to consider themselves to be Christians and get some of the phrases right and the titles right and get the words right coming out of your mouth, but have a really different idea about those things from what Jesus might have in mind. But we can do the same thing. Think, think about it with me. It's entirely possible for you or me or someone today to be thinking about themselves as a Christian and saying things like, yeah, I'm a, I believe in God. But, but what they mean by that is, well, I believe there is a God and that he's the one that likely made everything. But they're yet to come to believe in the big thing that God has actually done in his son Jesus on the cross. That, 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 that's not part of the belief, but... A person might be thinking, and maybe this is you today, you're like, I believe in God, surely that's enough. No, no. Do you believe in the big thing God did <laughs> by sending his son? Because that, that's really what it means to believe in God. Or, or you could be someone who, this is, it's easy to do this, it's, it'd be someone who's figured out how to belong to a church, and fit in and be helpful and um, you know, contribute and, and, and feel like that because you belong to a mob of Christians and you're part of the community and, and a valued part of the community that you, you're all right, but it's entirely possible to belong to a church community but yet to actually have a personal saving relationship with Jesus. Yep. I think churches around our nation, around our world can, can easily be filled with people who love the sense of belonging. It's part of what God's got for us. It's awesome to belong to God's people and function as part of it but to to do that and actually miss the personal one-on-one relationship with Jesus is to miss the guts of this yeah so it's easy to have the phrases and some of the concepts but miss the heart you know I think it's even easy to um, for a person to use the word salvation in regards to Jesus and to be a person who says um, talks about themselves as being saved I got saved at a certain point uh, and I've been saved by Jesus. But you can use that language. And here's the classic thing I hear these days. You use the language about being saved by Jesus. But what the person means is that they've been saved from failing to reach their full potential. And effectively see Jesus' coming and existing is actually to just really help their life to be all that it can be. And that's the definition of salvation. So the definition of sin in that picture really is sin is failing to be all that you can be. And there's some truth to that. But if you leave sin defined as that, then you actually will miss what Jesus will tell you about sin, which is way more hardcore. Sin is actually the diseased heart that you have that makes you by nature actually desire to 
at times and means to reject and rebel and offend um, and, and betray the one who made you and loves you. That, that's sin. That's heavy. That's not simply not reaching your full potential. That's almost like a, a secularized version or picture of salvation. So, did you see what I'm getting at, though? Like, you can use the word saved. I've been saved by Jesus, but what do you mean by saved? What do you think you've been saved from? Because if you can't articulate what sin is and the problem with sin and how you personally need to be saved from your sin, then your picture of salvation may be very different from what Jesus would have you understand, in which case he, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. Yeah? You know, I think it's... Here's, here's another...